Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? It's good to see you guys. It's good to be with you. If you've got your Bibles on you, uh, you can go ahead and open those and meet me in Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in Acts 2, 42 through 47. This is our our main text for this morning. We're going to come back to this one over and over and over again, but just in advance, I'll let you know we'll be bouncing around to a few different places. And so if you don't feel like flipping to to keep up all the time, that's okay. I'll have all the verses, all the scripture up on the screen, but this is where we're going to, this is where you can just post up for this morning. All right. So Again, it's good to be with you guys this morning. I'm excited to be here, to worship with you, to dive into God's Word. My name is Pastor Trey. I am the spiritual formation pastor here at Huddo Bible Church. Just in case you're new and I haven't had the chance to meet you, welcome. Hopefully I will get to meet you. You should come to our newcomer's lunch after third hour. It's going to be awesome. But glad you're here. So I wanted to formally introduce myself and Uh, This morning, we are wrapping up our four-week series on the topic of community. And so, as a reminder for those who have been here for the last three weeks, and if you haven't, I'll kind of catch you up, but uh, over the last three weeks, here's where we've been. Week one, we spent our time in 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13, diving into Paul's short prayer where he ties together uh, the command to love one another and the call to be holy as God is holy is found in First Peter. And the point uh, that Sunday was to say that there's no biblical category for spiritual maturity that exists in isolation. Like we need to be in community as followers of Jesus in order to grow and to, to live out the be holy as I am holy call in the word of God. Week two, we spent time in 1 John 4, 7 through 12. And John's point in that passage is, uh, okay, look at the love of God as it's been revealed, made known in the sending of Jesus. Look at the love of God as it's been displayed in Christ's atoning death on the cross. And then experience the love of God as you love one another, right? So how do I know God loves me? Well, look at... He came. He sent his son. Well, yeah, but how do I know God really loves me? Well, look, his son died for you, but, but is there a way to like, like, how can I really, really know? Is there a way to experience that love? And John would say, yes, it's actually when the people of God love one another that his love is made complete or perfected. We experience his love tangibly through our love of one another. And then week three, which was last week, Pastor James took us through 1 Thessalonians uh, 2. 1 through 20, a passage that is littered with family language, right? Familial language. And so there's brother and sister language throughout. We've got motherly language, fatherly language. And the point was to, again, draw out the familial nature of the church that's described all throughout the New Testament. And the church, as Pastor James showed us last week, the church as a family suffers together to grow the family. As a family... The church models and challenges growth within the family. And again, as a family, we celebrate growth within the family of God. And all along the way over the last three weeks, our plea to you has been, you and I, all of us were made for community. We need it. It is woven into our DNA by God. Like even if you have a customized mug in your home office that says, uh, world's biggest introvert, You need community. You need other people. God's designed you for it. 
And while you might have a working list of reasons to stay out of community, the reality is the enemy wants us to believe that we're better off alone. But there's a grace to be experienced when you resist the devil and move towards a life that is shared with others. There's a level of obedience to Jesus that's not achievable apart from community because every one another command in the New Testament takes on legs or it hits the runway when we are living in the context of community. Like I'm going to give you a really silly sentence here and I, I hope, even if you like don't get it, I hope the point is, is clear, right? It is impossible to one another, one another, when there's no one another to one another. Does that make sense? It's silly, I know, but I think it works. And if not, don't tell me it doesn't, okay? Like the point is, we need one another to actually live out all of the one another's in the New Testament. And so as we wrap up this sermon series, my hope is to paint for you a picture today, a picture that is portrayed in God's word of what God wants to do in the hearts and lives of his people as we move out of living in isolation and begin to actually live in community with one another. And, and, and really what I want to do is, is hopefully you're to the point where you're ready to take that step to move towards community. And what I want to do today is just paint an accurate picture according to the word of God of what you can expect when you start to do that. And so I've got two questions. If you're a note taker, you might just want to take a picture. I will come back to these, but if you know me, you know I move fast. And so I'm sorry. But here are the two questions that I hope to answer to some degree today. First, what kind of community does God create in Christ? Like what, what is God doing? What kind of community is he building in his son Jesus, through his son Jesus, by the Holy Spirit? And then second, what does God intend to do in the life of his people through community? Like what does God actually want to happen in the lives of his people? in this context of community. So let's look at Acts 2, 42 through 47 together. Luke writes, And they, talking about the church, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Now, some context for this passage. This description of the early church comes just on the heels of uh, Pentecost, the event that we read about in the beginning of Acts chapter 2, in which the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the people of God to permanently indwell any and all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. So you had 3,000 plus souls saved in a moment as the apostle Peter preaches, again, power of the Holy Spirit. He preaches the, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended. And then the church of Jesus Christ was born there in Jerusalem. It's incredible. And then you get this passage, again, just on the heels of that, Acts 2, 42 through 47, and Luke details now the effect that the Holy Spirit has had on this new community of faith. Now, if you've read the book of Acts before, or if you've studied the book of Acts before, maybe you've read this description about the early church and you've been filled with this like sense of nostalgia. 
And by that, I mean like you read it and maybe you thought, oh man, the early church had it. They had something. There was something happening there. There was something special. It's so pure. It's so perfect. I mean, the church today is just too institutionalized. It's too messy. It's too, like we have strayed far from Acts chapter 2. And, and maybe if the church was more like it was in Acts chapter 2, I would just be more inclined to kind of, you know, be a part of what's happening more. Like, give me more community. Give me more of this. I don't want maybe what's available. I want more of this. If only we could recover that. Let's get back to that Acts chapter 2 stuff. And, and here's what I would say. Like, maybe... Like, maybe that's the case. Now, let me be clear. Luke is painting a remarkable, compelling, beautiful picture of the church in Acts chapter 2. But keep in mind, this is a descriptive snapshot, meaning that the book of Acts as narrative, as genre, the narrative, it, it, it gives a ton of snapshots throughout the book of what the early church was like, what the early church was doing. And often Luke is describing, again, descriptively, he's saying, this is what's going on as he retells the story of the continued work of Jesus through the church. And so this is, this is one of those descriptive snapshots. But of course, there's a lot of scripture that comes before Acts 2. And there's a lot of scripture that comes after Acts chapter 2. Like, it's not as if we get to Acts chapter 2 and all of a sudden, Genesis 3 has been nullified. As if as if the fall of humanity into sin is not still a reality. Like you get to Acts 4 and Acts 5 and Luke actually kind of wakes us up to this reality, right? Acts 4, I'm going to read 32 through 37 for you. It actually reads really similar to Acts 2. It's incredible. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who uh, also, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold the field that belonged to him and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this passage comes just after Peter and John were held, interrogated, and threatened by the Sadducees for sharing the gospel. And so it's like the heat is being turned up in Jerusalem on the early church and their response is, we're going to pray we're going to keep sharing the gospel and we're going to keep living together in community and we're going to be generous and generous and generous with one another. But then you get to Acts chapter 5 and we have a story of a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They're a part of the church. This couple sold some land. They kept some of the money for themselves, which on its face doesn't feel wrong. But then they come to the apostles and they say, here's all the proceeds from us selling the land. Now, if you have read Acts chapter 5 in this story, what happens to this couple? They die. It is shocking, right? I mean, they just, boom, they're dead. And Peter's explanation is, well, you lied to the Holy Spirit, and so you died. It's like, really? But like the point, and we could, you could get into Acts 5, you could really dig in. There's a lot of stuff there. My point is that Luke, I think, is quickly bringing us back to reality that sin is still present. 
It's still present, meaning this, this community of, er, of the earliest Christians, they're not perfect yet because creation and humanity has not been perfected yet. It is still groaning, eagerly waiting for the kingdom of God, which was inaugurated to actually be fully consummated. Now, that does not negate or diminish what God had done through his son Jesus, nor what he was doing by the power of his spirit, but it is to temper or regulate expectations. Like, I'm going to give you a really, really, really long quote, okay? So just bear with me, but this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together. It was too long. It was too good of a quote for me to cut it out. So he says this, in Christian brotherhood, everything depends upon its being clear right from the beginning. First, that Christian brotherhood is not an ideal, but a divine reality. And second, that Christian brotherhood is a spiritual and not psychic reality. Innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it has sprung up from a wish dream. The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and then try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must, be, must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. He does not abandon us to those rapturous experiences and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. God is not a God of the emotions, but the God of truth. And only that fellowship, which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects, begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to uh, grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and it must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. And so his point, which I think is really good, is that our experience of God's grace in community comes when our expectations of what community actually looks like are corrected. Like when our unhealthy or unrealistic expectations are shattered by God's grace and we see community for what it is and what God intends for it to be, that's when we get to experience the grace made available to us in community by God. And Bonhoeffer actually ends by saying, when the morning mist of dreams vanish, then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. And so with that, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold on to Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. I want you to keep them here at the forefront of your mind because to understand, I think, like, these are beautiful texts, but to really see the beauty and the color of this text, I think we need to go back a little bit. So I'm going to go back to Matthew 10. Verses 1 through 4, I'll have it on the screen uh, in case you don't want to flip around. But this is what Matthew writes. And he, referring to Jesus, called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. 
Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, Jesus had hundreds of disciples. And in that hundreds of disciples, you had women as well. But but here you've got... 12 that are listed, right? And so what we see is Jesus, if you were to kind of do like concentric circles, you'd have the hundreds and then you've got his 12 and then Jesus kind of has his three and then, you know, John is like, and then I'm his one, right? But he's got like his circles of friendships, right? Here we're talking about the 12, these apostles. And, And while you might think, okay, what does a simple list of names have to do with anything? Here's what I want you to understand. We actually learn a lot about the community that Jesus built around himself by looking at the roster. So if you want to know what was Jesus's community group look like, what was it like? Well, let's look at the folks who were in it, starting with Peter, Andrew, James, and John. We've got four men two sets of brothers. Both of them were fishermen. They were actually partners in the trade. And uh, like, so these were like blue collar guys, right? We also got Matthew, a tax collector, meaning that though he was Jewish, he worked for the Roman government collecting taxes from Jewish people. And so he was considered a traitor or an outsider by his own people for his affiliation with the Roman government. He He was a federal employee, right? He worked for the federal government and he likely made some good money doing so. And again, that came at the expense of being rejected by his own people. And then we've got Simon the Zealot. Uh, Simon was a part of this sect of Judaism called the Zealots and they hated Rome. They hated, hated Rome. In fact, some historians have said that there were zealots who would actually carry blades on them as they went into public so that if they saw a Roman official, they would sneak up behind them, kill them, and slide off into the background because they so badly wanted the Roman government to fall and Israel to be restored. So badly. So, question. How does it bode when you've got One of the guys in the group considered a Jewish trader who collects payments from guys like, I don't know, Simon the Zealot to give money to Rome. Do you think that bodes well? Do you think there's some conflict going to happen in this little community group? Probably, right? Now, let's not forget Judas, the guy who kept the money for the crew, right? Who happened to personally help himself to some money when he needed it. And also we know that he's the one who, for a little extra cash, handed Jesus over to be crucified. Now, this is just background on what they did and and some of what they believed. This didn't even get into personality types, which we love personality types, don't we? We've got a million quizzes to identify personality types. So let's do that a little bit. So we've got Peter who's loud, he's outspoken, he has the propensity to stick his foot in his mouth almost every time he speaks, right? Like this is the guy who calls Jesus the Messiah. He's like, you are the Messiah, right? And Jesus is like, well done, Peter. And then 30 seconds later, Jesus is like, the Messiah, me, I'm gonna go and be crucified. And Peter's like, no way, you can't do that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Like this is the guy who's like, Jesus, I will never leave you. And then Jesus is like, listen, you're going to deny me not once, not twice, but three times, friend. Okay? And then he does. That's Peter. Now, we've also got with Peter, we've got Thomas. Thomas is just kind of your like cynic, you know? He's kind of quiet. 
kind of negative. He's your classic glass half empty kind of guy in the group. And then you've got James and John, the sons of thunder, who uh, they made all the other disciples in the crew angry when they had their mommy ask Jesus if they could sit at his right and left hand in the kingdom of God. Now, how did they get this amazing nickname of sons of thunder? Well, it's because they wanted to call fire down from heaven to wipe out a Samaritan village, which is insane and racist. Like now, maybe the rest of the disciples were thinking it, but they weren't going to say it. But James and John, they were like, ah, we'll say it. And so here's what I know. Okay. If I'm putting together the ideal Bible study, which I've put a few of those together, or if I'm, if I'm forming a new community group at Huddle Bible Church, I'm not using this as my template. That's what I'm saying about the twelve. Like, it would be like me walking into a room and going, okay, so we've got our Democrat, we've got our Republican, we've got the guy who can't shut up, even though he's wrong all the time, and we've got the guy who's really quiet, but when he speaks, he's really negative. Oh, and we've got the brothers over there, right, who think they're better than everybody, and they're a little racist. We've got those guys. Is there anybody else that we're missing for the crew to make this just like the ideal group of people? Like, on paper, this community group is the one I'm not going to. Because it's going to be messy and it's going to be like busted up. It's going to be a disaster on paper. This group of people does not work. And yet, this is who Jesus called. Like this is the community of people that Jesus chose to surround himself with. This is the group of people that Jesus said, come and follow me. Come and be with me. Come and live with me. Come and learn from me. Do what I do. Like in Mark 2, we get the story where Jesus calls Matthew away from being a tax collector to come and follow him. And Matthew says yes. And so they go and have like a dinner party at Matthew's place. And it's, it's Jesus, it's the, the disciples, it's Matthew. And then there are some other folks there, some more tax collectors and sinners, right? Some more messy people. And you've got the Pharisees who see what's going on and they ask Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, if I'm honest, this is my heart. I don't know about yours, but this is mine. If I'm honest, I'm more like the Pharisees in this story than I'd like to admit. Like more often than not, I look at a group of people and I think them I don't know. That's just me. And yet, you've got Jesus. As they're like, why are you hanging with these people, Jesus? These tax collectors and these sinners. And his response, which I love, is I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. I, I came not to heal those who are well, but those who are sick. And as I was thinking about this, I found myself asking the question, like, what would compel this crew of people, people who, if there's a spectrum of differences, they hit nearly every mark on the spectrum, what would be so compelling as to draw this crew of people together, people in different socioeconomic classes, people with different political views, people with different personalities, educations, families of origin, backgrounds, all that stuff. Why would these people choose to spend their lives together following this Jewish rabbi named Jesus? What was so compelling? Well, I don't think it was their shared interests. 
I don't think it was their similarities, but I think it was their need. And it was the fact that Jesus alone is the only one who could heal what was broken in them. Like Jesus Christ, the Son of God, perfect and spotless without sin in all of his ways, the one who lived the life that these folks could not live, that they couldn't live, a life in perfect obedience to the Father, the one who died a death, a sinner's death on a cross, the death that they deserved to die, and the one who was resurrected from the dead three days later, leaving sin and death behind. I think it was him. He was the compelling one. Like they had a need, one that they could not fix on their own. And Jesus Christ, the only one who could and who did, he's the one who called them to himself. Listen, if you sit in this room today as a follower of Jesus, I want you to understand that your story is the same. That in a moment, God graciously removed the veil from your eyes. He softened your hardened heart. He made known to you the severity of your sin and the depth of your need. And then he calls you to himself through his son, Jesus, the one and the only one who could save you and reconcile you to God through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And if you're not a follower of Jesus in this room this morning, this may not be your story right now. But guess what? It can be. It can be right now. If you would place your faith in Jesus Christ alone, the one who lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sin, and rose from the dead three days later so that the relationship with God, the Father, the Creator, the one who made you for Himself, that relationship which you were separated from because of sin can be restored in Christ. And this can be your story. And so what was so compelling? Well, it was Jesus. And the New Testament is filled with story after story after story of Jesus calling sinners and outcasts to himself and then welcoming them into this wildly diverse and often dysfunctional community. And here's my point in saying all of this. My point is you don't get Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 4 without Matthew 10 and Mark 2 and every other story in the New Testament before that. Like it's, it's not as if somewhere along the way before Acts 2, the band broke up and Jesus started over with a new crew. That didn't happen. It's not as if the 12 listed in Matthew 10 went somewhere else because Jesus went to be with the Father. And since he's gone, they decided we're going to go our separate ways. It was nice, doing, it was nice living with you. That was fun. I'm going to go find it. That didn't happen. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, we've got a list of the same names, 11 of the 12, excluding Judas, 11 of the 12, Luke lists them and says they're all together, and with one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. No, they didn't, this didn't happen, this is what happened with this crew. And then, when the Spirit of God fell and the church was born, it's not as if it was suddenly too big and they were like, I gotta go find a smaller community. This is just too much for me. You know, Paul in Ephesians 2.20 says that if Jesus is the, this isn't like a, if Jesus is the cornerstone, then the rest of the foundation that the church is built upon is the apostles and the prophets. In Acts 2, we read that this crew, this dysfunctional crew, they're the ones teaching the early church about the life death, and resurrection of Jesus as it was foretold in the Old Testament. They're the ones preaching the gospel together in Jerusalem. 
So again, my point is that all the differences of opinion and income and personality and interest and whatever, all of that, all of the stuff that you point to and go, well, this just does not work. All the stuff that we might point to, that they might have pointed to and said, no, 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 this just does not work. All of that became secondary to the one thing that tied them together, which was Jesus and his preeminence. And so I, like I, listen, I think Acts 2 and Acts 4 are remarkable passages, but I think what makes them so beautiful and compelling is everything that comes before. Now, it wasn't clean, it wasn't perfect, but you have 3,000 plus people, including the disciples, including the 12 apostles, all of them together. And according to Acts 2 and 4, they were learning, they were growing together as they studied the scriptures and as the apostles taught, they worshiped together and prayed together in the temple, they shared meals together in homes, they took communion as they participated in the Lord's table when they gathered, they opened their hands with generous hearts and sold what they had so that the needs of others might be Met And according to Acts 4, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And lest you look back with nostalgia and think that this activity was unique to the early church, can I just tell you, all of that happens here at Huddle Bible Church. All of it. We gather for prayer, for worship, for communion. We have our community groups where people are eating meals weekly praying together, studying the word of God together. We've got Bibles. I mean, all of that stuff happens here at Hutto Bible. And what's amazing is that if you look around the room, we're still different people. Our opinions about politics might be different. Our thoughts about cultural issues might be different. Our personalities are definitely different. Our skin color, also definitely different. Our incomes, I would imagine, different. And in a cultural moment where all of those things would should lead us to kind of cut and categorize each other and and put each other in a spot and then kind of back away, withdraw from one another with hostility and judgment. And in that kind of an environment, it's the gospel of Jesus that ties us to one another. Imperfections and differences in all of that. And it's the grace of God to forgive us our sin and form us into the image of Jesus Christ through the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit as we live in community. And so what makes Acts 2 and Acts 4 amazing is everything that comes before. And we today get to experience the grace of God as it is painted for us in Acts 2 and Acts 4 when we allow Matthew 10 and Mark 2 and the rest of what comes before that to set our expectations for what community is actually going to be like. And so going back to the questions I asked earlier, uh, what kind of community does God create in Christ? Well, it's one that's counterintuitive according to the wisdom of the world. It's one that, that makes those looking in say, okay, this makes no sense. Even some of us on the inside are like, this does not make sense. It's one that's marked by and held together in Christ through the Spirit. It's one that's characterized by God's grace and love as He pours it out through His people. It's one in which the preeminence of Jesus makes all of our differences bow in submission and gives all within a unified heart and soul. And what does God want to do in the life of His people through community? Well, He wants to give us generous and glad hearts. He wants to tie us to one another as we worship the one true God together, he wants to shape all of us as we move towards community to be more like his son, Jesus. 
And he gives us a shared heart, a shared identity. So that while we are going to become more like each other, that just kind of happens when you spend time, you start to rub off on each other. Ultimately, again, we become more and more like Jesus. And so I'm going to end where we actually started like four weeks ago, okay? By every metric today, we are more connected than we've ever been and we are more lonely than we've ever been. And the majority of self-identifying Christians in America would say that discipleship or to Jesus or their spiritual life is, is private. It's between them and God and no one else. And yet the overwhelming message of the Bible is that we were made for community, that it is not good for man to be alone. And God in his kindness has given us his people a gift of his grace, one in which we can experience tangibly his love as he pours it out through his people, and that gift is called community. And so, again, I'll say it for the fourth week, move towards community. Move towards it, not away from it. Move towards community because, listen, if there is, like, if God has given something to his people, a good gift that we can experience right now, why wouldn't we want that? Like, I'll I'll just tell you, uh, I want all that God has for me right now. I know there's some sweet stuff coming, but I want all that he has for me right now. And I want you to to experience all that God has for you right now. And to begin to do that, we have to start moving towards community because there's a gift, a gift of his grace. It's right there. We need only step into it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have woven into our DNA both a need and a desire for community. Like even as an introvert in this room, it's like I know what happens when I'm alone for too long. And how sweet, how sweet are you, God, to give us a gift of your grace. The church, your people, a people who come from different backgrounds, a people who come from different socioeconomic classes, people who have different interests, different skin colors, different whatever. All of us come into this room and the one thing, the most important thing that ties us together is your son, Jesus. And so we are so thankful that as we move towards community and as we move towards what you have for us, there is actually a gift of your grace waiting for us right there to be experienced. And so God, I pray that you would help us to be a people who would start to take steps to move away from isolation, to move towards community, towards being known, towards sharing our lives with others consistently, regularly. Help us to be a people who move towards all of those one another commands that you have for your your church. And as we do so, may you, Lord, would you, by your spirit, shape us to be more like your son, Jesus. Again, as your grace is poured out through our love for one another. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are going to move into a time of communion together. And so at Huddle Bible Church, we practice open communion, which just means that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are welcome to come and participate at the table with us. And so the band is going to play. We're going to give you a few minutes to move around the room. Uh, As you do, come on up. 
We want you to receive the elements, take them back with you, and then we will uh, partake together. On the night of the Passover, Jesus uh, sat with his disciples as they uh, ate the Passover meal. And again, just as a reminder of who was at that table, we had uh, a rabbi, Jesus. We have a, a Jewish trader who worked for the Roman government. Had a guy who probably wanted to kill the other guy at one point. Had a skeptic. We had a guy who would deny Jesus three times. Two guys who wanted fire to rain down on a bunch of Samaritans and who tried to grab at positions of honor in the kingdom. And a guy who would hand Jesus over to be crucified. This was his crew. And on that night, the night of the Passover, Jesus' final meal He looked around the table, I imagine, at their faces, at their eyes, knowing their backgrounds, their histories, all that had happened before that moment. He looked at them, he took the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And nearly 2,000 years later, we come here to him at this table now as one community to hear him say those words to us. This is my body, broken for you. And so, church, take and eat. And that same night, Jesus, he took the cup and he said, This is the blood of my covenant. This is the, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And it's the same blood that tied that crew together then that ties us as his people, as his children, together today. And so take and drink, all of you. Now let's worship together. Amen. Uh, That was awesome. Well, uh, hey, before you go, I do have just a few things I want to leave you with, um, including uh, an announcement. So first, just going back to our passage from this morning, Acts 2, the the last verse there, I want to read this for you, talking about the church. Again, we've looked at what they were doing together, but then Luke says that they had favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And it struck me reading that last sort of like tag that Luke adds there at the end of that passage. And I thought, man, I, I just, I wonder if the favor that the Lord had given them, like if, if like the church growing and expanding in Jerusalem, if part of it was that like the way they were living together as the church, all of the, like this be- the stuff that we read that we're like, oh my gosh, that was so beautiful. Like, I wonder if the people in Jerusalem were like, man, that's beautiful. Like, I don't know what that is. I don't know what's going on. Like, these are those, this is, those are the Christians, right? Those followers of the way, that new community that's formed. And like if, if this favor they were finding was because of how they were actually living with one another, not just preaching the gospel, but how they were actually living and, and encouraging one another and the generosity they were showing one another. And I just, I was thinking, man, like in a, in a cultural moment again, where 
the default is divide and withdraw or divide and say, I've got you figured out and here's 10 reasons I don't like you because of X, Y, and Z and what you think about this thing or whatever. Like, if, if what our neighbors, not like just our like world, but like our neighbors and our coworkers and the people who hang at the places where we play, if what they need is not just gospel proclamation, though they need that, but they need gospel proclamation and they need to see followers of Jesus living in community, loving one another, encouraging one another, building one another up, sharing what they have, their resources with those in need. Like they need to see the church being the church. Like Mark Dever says in his book on the church that the church is the gospel made visible. And I love that because it's one thing to say, here's what we believe. And it's another thing to actually live that out in such a way that those who don't know Jesus look in and go, huh, well, that seems sweet. (laughs) Maybe there's something to this message that they're proclaiming. And like, as I'm saying this, I want to mention, I want to highlight a community in our church that is like, you talk about a community that like on paper, you're like, who, like who would put these people together? Like this just doesn't feel like it adds up. Uh, our evangelism team, they are like the most unassuming group of people in the world. Like you look at them and you're like, you walk into a room and you're like, I would not have, I wouldn't have done, I wouldn't have picked this. But what's incredible is it's a, like it's a legit community in this church where they love each other. Like they're real friends. They pray for each other. They know what's going on in each other's lives. They follow up with each other. I mean, it's amazing. And then they go out and they knock on doors and they share the gospel with folks. And then they come back and they celebrate what God did. I mean, their lives are all kinds of connected and it's incredible. And our evangelism team they're actually going out today at 11, uh, during the 11 o'clock service to go and knock on the doors of some folks in our city to share the gospel, uh, Lord willing, and, and hopefully so that the Lord would give them favor and more would be added to the church. And, and so we want to pray for them before they go. And then finally, before I pray, Newcomer's Lunch, again, it's in the warehouse, our student ministry building after our third service. If you're new and you want a free lunch, you should join us because there's an enormous amount of chicken from what I've been told. So um, if, if you're, we've got a couple minutes. If you're on the evangelism team and you're going out, uh, will you come to the front? so we can pray over you. And we, we did it at uh, eight o'clock and it just feels rude to not, not do it with you guys. So I want to invite y'all up. And then if y'all will, uh, everybody else, if you'll stretch your hands out, we're going to lay hands on them, pray for them uh, and ask that the Lord would give them favor. God, thank you for this team, for this community of men and women, brothers and sisters, this community of people that, again, it's like I, I wouldn't think that they're all friends. And yet, God, you have worked trem- just tremendously by your spirit in this particular group as they go to serve you with one another. God, the way you're tying their hearts to each other is just beautiful. And so, God, I ask that you would give them favor as they go into our community. God, that uh, that people would be prepared, Spirit, that you would go forth and prepare them so that as they knock on doors, folks would open their doors, that they would be willing to listen, to talk. God, that there would be a, a level of vulnerability with the people they encounter that just seems like, it's just like alarming. Like, like what is this kind of vulnerability, God? I pray that you would do that, that you would um, t- 
tear down the walls, uh, cause people to put down the arms, whatever would would cause them to react negatively, God, I, I pray that you now would again go forth and prepare them so that as these men and women from our church go and proclaim the name of your son, that folks would hear and respond in faith. We love you, Lord. We ask for your favor in this matter. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Grace and peace, church. Have a great Sunday.